Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to just read verse 5. I was reading through this section a few weeks ago in my daily reading, and a phrase stood out to me from this chapter that I want to consider this morning. So 1 John chapter 3 verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And the phrase I want to consider this morning is this phrase, he appeared. And it comes up again later in this chapter, and then we will also be looking at a similar phrase in the Gospel of John. So I want to consider this morning three reasons that Christ came. And the first one here is that he appeared in order to take away sins. For myself, I know I get too familiar with truths from the Bible, and I don't stop and ponder enough the glory that is in them. This is a glorious truth that Jesus came. He appeared in order to take away our sins. When we consider our own state apart from Christ, This reality that Jesus came to take away sins should cause us to rejoice. What is our state apart from Christ according to Scripture? Well, first, Scripture says we were all born in sin. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Secondly, Scripture says we are all under sin. In Romans 3, it says, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And third, we are all slaves of sin. Jesus says in John 8, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And then fourthly, Apart from a Savior, we will die in our sins. Again, in John 8, Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So as you can see here, apart from Christ, we are in a desperate situation. But when we consider this phrase, he appeared in order to take away sins, it should cause us to rejoice. Now, this phrase, take away sins, may not bring much imagery to our minds as Gentile 21st century believers, but for a Jew who grew up under the Mosaic law, this would bring a lot of imagery to mind. There is so much in the Old Testament that points to the work of Christ. Although just symbols and shadows, they point to the reality of what Christ did in his death on the cross. And I want to look at one example from the book of Leviticus. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. And we're going to look at um, this account here of um, the Lord instructing Moses and Aaron as to how um, they should handle uh, sacrifices. So Leviticus chapter 16 Verse 7, beginning in verse 7. He, that is Aaron, shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. 
Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And then skip down to verse 20. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So we have here two pictures of what Christ did for us on the cross. We have the live goat and the scapegoat. I'm sorry, the the goat that is offered, rather, as a sacrifice, and the scapegoat. So this first goat, the goat for the Lord, is killed as an offering for sin. It's clear to see how this applies to Christ. In Romans 8, verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And then in Revelation 5, it just says, Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. So we see here that this picture of Christ dying for sins is is so clearly demonstrated here with this goat that is offered for sin. But what about this second goat, this goat that is a scapegoat? And this one may seem that it doesn't really apply to Christ because this goat doesn't die. Um, Instead, it's released. Um, But I think if we look at what this goat represents, we'll see that this also is a picture of Christ. And if we look again, particularly at verse 21 here in Leviticus 16, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. So what's happening here? The sins of the people are being confessed over the head of this goat. There is, in essence, a transfer of guilt to this goat. And then the goat carries the guilt away, or as it says there, it bears the iniquities and I was thinking of this, again, this word picture, this imagery of carrying the guilt. Um, and it made me think there of Isaiah 53. And in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. 
And then skipping down to uh, verse 11 of Isaiah 53, it says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So you have that idea there of the iniquities, the sins of the people being placed upon Christ as he bears them, as he carries them. Now, when Scripture says that Jesus takes away sin, and I'm going back here to 1 John, when it says that Jesus takes away sin, it is not saying that he takes our sins and sweeps them away or, you know, just kind of hides them. Uh, Our sins don't just magically disappear. When it says that he takes away sin, it is saying that Jesus paid for our sins through his death on the cross. The penalty of sin has been taken care of. The guilt of sin is now gone. And all this because Jesus bore our sins on the cross like the scapegoat bearing sin and shed his blood and died for our sins like the other goat that was offered as a sin offering. So you see there where Christ really uh, is an example to us of both of these goats, one dying for sin and the other bearing and carrying it away. And I was thinking of the words of John the Baptist in John's gospel. It says, John speaking of Jesus says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's, that's what this is saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the first, the first one that I wanted to look at there in 1 John 3, 5. The second one, the second reason that Jesus came uh, is just a few verses down. 1 John 3, verse 8, and it says this, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So we have a similar phrase here. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, and it gives us that purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And to understand this, we need to know two things. One, what are the works of the devil? And two, how Jesus is destroying those works. And I've listed uh, a few works of Satan that I want to look at this morning and at how Jesus has destroyed these. Um, This is hardly an exhaustive list. I've merely selected a few for our consideration this morning. But it's really just going to be kind of a comparison, looking at what uh, the works of Satan and then comparing it with what Scripture says um, are the way that Jesus has destroyed those works. So there's going to be a lot of verses that I'm going to be mentioning here, and you don't have to turn to these. I'll just read them to you. But the first work of Satan that I want to consider is bondage to sin. Um, In thinking about there in Genesis 3, we have the first mention of Satan. So chapters 1 and 2, creation, and the perfection of creation. Um, And then here in chapter 3 of Genesis, you have the introduction of the serpent. And he comes in the garden as a, serp- as a serpent, and his first recorded words, he causes Eve to question God. And it's really amazing. The first words out of his mouth, he's already uh, causing trouble here. He's beginning to uh, question God. And in questioning God, he ultimately gets Adam and Eve to disobey God. And as a result of this, mankind 
has been in bondage to sin ever since. Ever since Genesis 3, there's been slavery and bondage to sin. And here's some verses for us to consider along this line. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Because of that one sin, death has spread to all men. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we looked at that one earlier. And then here's another one from uh, 2 Timothy, Paul speaking here. And this is kind of jumping into the middle of a thought. He says that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's an amazing thought that the world is held captive by Satan to do his will. Well, how does Jesus destroy this work of bondage to sin? And um, one passage that I think really uh, clearly explains this um, is early in the uh, account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke. the, um, The story there where Jesus goes into the temple and is reading from the book of Isaiah. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and then it says, as he closed the book, the eyes of everyone were fixed upon him. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was the one who came to proclaim release to the captives and to free those who are oppressed. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to set us free from sin. And to me, one of the greatest examples in scripture of the oppressed being set free is the example of the uh, Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. And just thinking of the, um, the word picture here of the, uh, the oppression that this man was under, um, starting in verse 2, this is Mark chapter 5, verse 2, when he, that is Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And then it goes on in these next few verses to describe this man. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. This is amazing. I mean, that is bondage to sin there. But then, in verse 8, Jesus commands these demons to leave. And then, jumping ahead to verse 15, it says, He was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Complete deliverance from this bondage to sin. And later... Um, As Jesus is leaving, this man who was once possessed is begging him to let him go with Jesus as he departs. I mean, what what a testimony there that in a moment, this man who was so 
vile, in extreme violence and wickedness. No one could even be around him. In a moment in time, Jesus casts the demons out, and he's changed. He's delivered immediately. So that is one work of Satan that Jesus has come to destroy, and that is bondage to sin. Another one, spiritual blindness. And thinking here of this uh, verse in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Really, for believers, this should, should cause us to be sympathetic. It would really cause us to be burdened for the lost. They are... Um, their minds have been blinded by the God of this world and that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Well, how does Jesus destroy this work of spiritual blindness? Um, in Acts uh, chapter 26, Paul is uh, retelling the story of his conversion. And he says, um, there, the road to Damascus, there he said, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And then verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So this is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to open our eyes that we may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And again, that kind of also gets back to that uh, idea of bondage to sin. We've been turned from dominion of Satan to God. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here is another um, work of Satan, spiritual blindness, that Jesus has come to destroy. And then a third one I thought of here, lying and deceit. How, how clearly this is portrayed in Satan. He is called the father of lies in John chapter 8. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And we can see this clearly, again, looking back uh, in Genesis chapter 3 there in the garden. Um, when Satan came to Eve, what was he doing when he came to her? He was convincing her to believe a lie, and he wrapped the lie in just enough truth to make it seem believable. He was deceiving her, and that's what she said. When, when questioned later, she said, the serpent deceived me and it, it was true there was there was an element of truth there but he's doing it in such a way for her to believe a lie well how does Jesus destroy this work of Satan and lies in John 14 Jesus said to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me 
And then again in John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here we have this in in John 14, Jesus says, I am the truth. And then in John 8, he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So again, Jesus is the one who is going to set us free from uh, lying and deceit and from spiritual blindness and from bondage to sin. Well, this uh, this last uh, reason that Jesus came, at least that I'm going to consider this morning, is found in John's Gospel, chapter 10. And really, this one that we're going to look at is um, a continuation of this idea of Jesus coming to destroy the works of Satan. But in John chapter 10, verse 10, and again, Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this is the ultimate description of what the work of the devil is, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And what we looked at previously of the works of Satan, it really can be summed up in this way, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And what has Satan touched and influenced that has not resulted in loss, death, and destruction? And think about the serpent in the garden. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. They had peace and fellowship with one another. They had life unmarred by sin. They had no shame. They had a real, genuine innocence. But what happened after the serpent deceived Eve and they both ate of the fruit? Well, one of the first things, death. The ultimate effect of Satan's influence was death. And we already looked at this verse in Romans uh, 5.12. Just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And again in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That was one of the effects there that Satan had in the garden. Another one, loss of fellowship with God, a separation from him. Thinking again there in Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. These are effects of Satan. And and then thinking on a horizontal level here, relationship troubles. Where once there had been peace in the marriage relationship, now there is strife and desire to be in control. Uh, In Genesis 3.16, it says, To the woman, he said, that is, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And we've heard uh, messages on this, this idea of, your desire being for your husband. This is not a, uh, a loving, romantic-type desire. This is a desire to be in control, to be r- over her husband. And then uh, as a result of this also, you have the husband, instead of leading, gently leading his wife, he will rule over in a harsh sort of way. This is not the way that it was meant to be. Um, thinking also in uh, this description of the natural man 
In Colossians chapter 3, it says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. This is now what the natural man is like. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And then thinking of relationship troubles, how about Cain and Abel, the first two offspring born to Adam and Eve? And I can't help but think of what we just looked at there in John 10. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's what he did in the, in the family there in, um, in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. One of the primary works of the devil is death, and Jesus has come to bring life. And there are three things that I want to consider in closing here about Jesus coming to bring life. And the first one is just very simple. Jesus himself is life. Um, in John 1.4, speaking of Jesus, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, and then in John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So again, Jesus himself is the life. Jesus is not giving us something that is outside or separate from himself. When he gives life, he gives us himself. He came that we might have life. He came that we might have him. He is life. And in 1 John uh, chapter 5, says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. You see the, the equality there. The Son is life. He who has the Son has the life. Well, secondly, Jesus gives life. In John chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. This is an amazing thing. Jesus gives life to whom he wishes. And then in John chapter 6, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. This is why Jesus came, to bring life to the world. And then the third thing uh, here about Jesus giving life that uh, comes up here in, in John chapter 10. Jesus gives abundant life. It says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And I was thinking here of um, the, the woman at the well there, and Jesus is speaking with her, and he says, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So this water that Jesus is referring to uh, represents spiritual life. But notice how Jesus describes it, a well of water in us. This is abundance, um, not just a little bit of water, but a continual source of water within us. Um, and it made me think there in um, when the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and they need water. And uh, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. 
And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so the people get water and drink. And if you just kind of read over it, you kind of miss some of the uh, amazement of this passage. You know, if, if you're wandering through the wilderness, you and a few other people, and you come across, you know, a little pool of water, you know, like there's some water. But what if there were approximately a million people and all their livestock with them, and there's no water to be found, and, oh, we can get some water out of this rock. Well, what would it take to have water enough for everyone? It would have to be an enormous amount of water, an overwhelming amount of water. And this is the way the psalmist describes it in Psalm 78. It says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. That's a lot of water. The ocean depths and water that comes out like rivers. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul plainly says that this rock was Christ. Um, so what are we to make of this? When Jesus gives life, he doesn't just give a barely breathing, almost dead kind of life. It is abundant and overflowing. It's water that is within us that causes a continual source of life. And I was thinking also there in uh, John chapter 2 where Jesus um, changes the water into wine. And again, the picture there, you've got these six um, big stone pots full of water that says that contain 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus says, fill them to the top. So if, assuming they are uh, 30 gallons at the top, six of them, 180 gallons that he converts to wine. And what kind of wine? The best wine. And it's not just a little bit. It's an overflowing, abundant amount of wine. And that, is again, is a picture of what Jesus does for us in giving us life. It's not just a little bit of life. It's abundant life, overflowing life. So here's three reasons from Scripture that Jesus came to, uh, in order to take away our sins, in order to destroy the works of Satan, and that we might have abundant life.